This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, September 24th, 2020. Toronto Deputy Mayor Stephen Holliday has a plan to improve contact tracing. Today's the 10th birthday of Netflix in Canada. We find out about how this platform changed the way we consume entertainment. The peace arrangement between Israel and the UAE as well as Bahrain is good news for Muslims everywhere. So says the President of the Council for Muslims facing tomorrow. And man's best friend may be our best hope for identifying who might be infected with COVID-19. All of this starts now. Stephen Holliday, as a deputy mayor, my spies tell me that uh, you had sent a letter to the General Government and Licensing Committee back a couple of weeks ago, or a week and a half ago. Uh, You want to know about the feasibility of installing the COVID Alert app on all City of Toronto managed mobile devices and take the necessary steps to maximize the benefit of the software. Uh, What the heck are you thinking, and uh, what was the reaction? Well, we were talking about it on this show once before. I mean, you know, we, we, we've often spoken about how the, that free COVID alert app that's out there isn't being used as much as we'd like it to across Canada, and therefore it's not as effective as it could be. I sit on the government licensing uh, committee, and, and one of the things I was thinking about was this big IT fleet that we've got. And I know, technically speaking, we can get it installed on all the city phones, but, you know, that's a bit of a big business decision for an organization. Uh, it's a little bit different. And uh, so I've asked the, the city management staff to come back to me and tell you, can we do this? I hear there's over 9,000 phones uh, owned by the City of Toronto that are used by employees and probably thousands of more in our agencies. And if we can do it, and if all other levels of government can do it, I think we can start to move the percentage dial on the use of the COVID Alert app. All right. Uh, but did you get any feedback, blowback, positive or otherwise? Well, I- you know, it's interesting. I, I talked to a bunch of people about the idea before I put the motion forward. Everyone thought it was a really good idea. But after I submitted it, I got copied on a letter by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association that wrote to the city manager that, and they, they, they kind of expressed complaint or concern about it. And I, their issue was they, they felt very strongly that the, the, the essence of the app was that it was voluntary. And uh, people should feel really comfortable about voluntarily using it. But, you know, I, gotta, I have to remember that this, the, where I'm, what I'm suggesting is, is the fleet of phones are, are owned by the taxpayers. They're paid for by the taxpayers. The people that would be using them are on taxpayer time. You know, why would we not, as a public entity, use everything we've got to try to fo- fight COVID? It would be irresponsible of me to, to ignore these assets. So I think it's a really interesting discussion. I'm not sure beyond them it's, it's that controversial, but, you know, we'll see what will happen between now and council. And I think council needs to make the decision as to whether or not we'll push this thing out and, uh, I don't know, strongly ask our employees to participate and make use of the application, at least on the city phones. What they do on their personal devices, that's up to them. All right. Well, you got the premier saying as much, hey, folks, download the app uh, and we've got to get on board with tracking and tracing. And so David Wills was our friend here, Stephen Holliday, barking up the right tree on this one. You know what? I think I think he is. Um, Stephen and I agree on this issue a lot. You know, I think the, his point that um, the employer is paying for the phone, the phone is only used you know, uh, supposedly during business hours for business purposes. It makes a lot of sense. 
you know, I can t- I can accept the argument of civil liberties of, of something that's voluntary forcing people. This is not forcing them. This is a tool that's being provided to do their job. We're getting close to the weekend. Weekend means well, it means a lot of binge watching is what it means. If you've got Netflix, you understand what that means. Boy, oh boy, you know, 10 years ago, who'd have thunk it? When this first launched in Canada, actually the 10-year anniversary was yesterday, that this, was, this would so revolutionize viewing habits and uh, maybe disrupting lives and uh, patterns that previously had existed where you'd go out and do stuff on the weekends and go for walks and engage otherwise. But uh, it's also been, I guess, uh, a real eye-opener for the quality of uh, product that is uh, presented there through their streaming service. Wasn't always peaches and cream, though. As a matter of fact, 10 years ago was still kind of uh, touch and go insofar as whether they would survive. And they were facing the onslaught from the other giant at the time for viewing eyeballs, which was Blockbuster. Hard to believe. As quaint as that sounds, Blockbuster was the big McGill at the time, and Netflix was the upstart. So what happened? Let's find out. Gina Keating has joined us on the line, the author of Netflix, The Epic Battle for America's Eyeballs, as well as the maker of the documentary Netflix versus the World. Gina, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Nice to talk to you. So, Gina, when I talk about uh, this epic battle that played out, uh, this was, you know, about 10 years ago, maybe a little sooner than that, because Netflix uh, 10 years ago was already a going concern. But it was touch and go for a while there around uh, the turn of the millennium, was it not, uh, with uh, Blockbuster? Yes, and as a matter of fact, uh, Blockbuster collapsed. Uh, Its international operations pretty much collapsed at about the same time that Netflix entered Canada. And Canada was a really big deal for um, for Netflix. And 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 the, the ten, ten, it's hard to believe it was only ten years ago, uh, because in two thousand seven. Blockbuster had Netflix on the ropes. Early 2008, uh, Netflix, or Blockbuster's total access program was actually growing much faster than Netflix. They had pioneered this idea of using their stores to let people exchange the DVDs by mail that we all used to rent before streaming, and they were uh, killing Netflix on that one. So, so it was uh, such a- no, I was just going to say, but Netflix uh, had gone all in on uh, the online or the digital offering while Blockbuster was still a bricks and mortar operation. But Blockbuster had also made a foray into online, did it not? Yes, it did. And that it took it a while to do that. It was 2004 before they launched. By this time, Netflix was already seven years old. Um, but it was, it, I mean, I was covering Netflix for Reuters at the time. And so many analysts, so many Wall Streeters really did not believe that people would ever stream. They just could not fathom that you would watch movies on your television, on your phone, et cetera. And, and that's something that Reed Hastings and his team saw, you know, into the future on. Uh, and Blockbuster, just, they just thought, no way, you know, this is, this is not how people are going to behave. This is not how customers are going to behave. Uh, because that idea of renting a movie on the weekend and sitting around with your family was so ingrained in our culture, and things have changed dramatically since then. Was it also a case at the time that streaming wasn't as sophisticated as it is today, and a lot of times, you know, you get caught in bumps and uh, hurdles and buffering and things like that? Yes. I mean, the the interesting thing was uh, there was what held back both movie downloading and streaming was the uh, spread of of broadband. I mean, you did not have the the 
preponderance of broadband that you do today. Netflix's app, I've got to say, though, I saw it when they launched it, was always fantastic. I mean, it was just as good as a, as a VCR or a DVD player, in my opinion. But, um, but that's a really difficult technology to master. And because Netflix is a tech company, they really understood that and, and were way ahead of everybody else because they were competing against content makers whose expertise was in making movies, not distributing them. They would give the distribution to other companies to put into movie theaters, you know, DVD boxes, et cetera. Um, so they were really ahead of the game on that with everyone. They were a tech company, and that's what made the difference with streaming with Netflix. Again, with Gina Keating, author of Netflix, The Epic Battle for America's Eyeballs. And so this battle, uh, by the way, they almost threw in the towel when you were talking about the visionaries, uh, Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph at the time, around the turn of the millennium. My understanding, confirm or deny, that they had actually wanted to unload this thing. It was just sort of a startup project, and they were willing to sell the blockbuster for $50 million. Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, in my documentary, Mark Randolph, the co-founder of Netflix, uh, makes a, a very funny comment that, Around, as you pointed out, around the turn of the millennium, we had the dot-com bust, and it was very difficult. And then, of course, 9-11 was very difficult to raise money. And for any streaming service or subscription service, it takes a while to make money because every subscriber that you add costs you money in marketing and so forth. So the cost is higher than what you're getting from the subscription fee, sometimes for several years. So they were running in the red, I mean, tens of millions of dollars in the red. And when they couldn't have any access to the capital markets, they decided, well, what are we going to do now? You know, how do we get ourselves out of this jam is what Mark Randolph said. And they were going everywhere trying to either get a partner to put some money into it or just get rid of it and try to get their money back. How long did it take Netflix from inception to start actually uh, realizing a profit? Because they burned through a lot of cash initially, didn't they? And they're still doing it. They did, yes. Uh, they were not profitable until the, they ran at break even starting in about 2004. And that's 2004, 2005. And that's when Blockbuster entered the market. Amazon was also thinking about doing a streaming service, which they did do in, in Europe. Um so Reed Hastings said, you know what, we're going to run it break even because we got to run these guys out of business. We're going to put our money into marketing. We're going to put it into optimizing the user interface and so forth. So they've always had a very thin profit uh, margin, cash on hand situation. And that, and that got worse um, in around 2010, 2011, when the studios realized that they were going to have to compete with Netflix. And they had given Netflix its head start by allowing Netflix to lease a lot of, or uh, to uh, yeah, lease a lot of their content. So they were helping build Netflix. Well, they were going to pull that content off, and Netflix was going to have to make its own content. And they knew that was happening, so they were ready to make that investment. What's interesting is at the time we were talking about, you know, Blockbuster in this head-to-head battle, Titanic struggle. I guess you know the old guard versus the upstart, and. Uh, you know, nothing killed Blockbuster faster than these late fees that perturbed countless people, myself included. I just hated the fact you're a day late and they're dinging you. Uh, that was not one of the value propositions behind Netflix, was it? No, but as a matter of fact, when Netflix first started, it was a copy of Blockbuster down to the late fees. Uh, 
but it was just online. You know, it was the same model, but they soon realized that after people exhausted the the free rentals that they got with their DVD player, they weren't coming back. So they had to make it more attractive. And the other problem was the mail service in the U.S. is, you know, it's a big country. So sometimes it takes a couple days to get something to someone and then to get it back, it takes a couple days. So that just wasn't working. And, and they finally hit on the subscription model kind of as an accident when they were trying to figure out, you know, how do we get people to uh, to to keep paying these subscription fees or to keep to pay us more money and come back. And that's when they hit on subscription and they had to get rid of late fees. It was kind of an accident, but they really played on it because they realized how much people hated Blockbuster for doing that. But it was like here in Canada, nine bucks a throw. I think that was the initial uh, cost on a monthly basis. And you're thinking to yourself, you're ringing that up with a couple of movie rentals on a weekend anyway. Uh, So this was really, again, the value proposition and all of that. Gina Keating with us, the author of Netflix, the epic battle for America's eyeballs, as well as the maker of the documentary Netflix versus the world. So how are they doing versus the rest of the world? I mean, because uh, now you've got all these streaming services coming in as competitors and they've got big bank rolls behind them as well. How does Netflix being established early on? Is that their saving grace or uh, where do you see the battle going in the next permutation? Yes. I mean, the fact that they're so far ahead in technology and that they do have a worldwide footprint now is going to be very difficult to defeat. Um, You know, Disney, I would say, was probably the closest or maybe YouTube, but that's a, a different kind of user occasion. Um, I think uh, Disney was the was the closest to competing, but they've had some problems with, um, you know, with content availability and their technology. So, you know, it's going to take everybody a while to catch up with them. And also the other thing about Netflix is it's kind of sort of like, I don't know what you would call it, like a, a pan world content provider because they don't really have a brand as far as their content goes. You can get almost any kind of anything on Netflix. Um, But Disney certainly has a type of brand. Uh, The American streamers like, uh, you know, Peacock, uh, YouTube, they're known for a certain brand of content, but people will go on Netflix or subscribe to it because it feels like you can get almost anything on it. And, And they've been very careful and very smart to brand themselves that way. So in and the other thing is strangely they benefit immensely in any kind of economic downturn because they're the best known streaming name and people want to stay home and conserve their cash they'll go to one stream or two maybe and Netflix is going to be their choice because like you said it's just been around forever yeah, it's become synonymous with streaming to a large extent, uh, and that is, you know, being first in uh, off times gives you that leg up. But, you know, in Canada, and by the way, you did cite this earlier that uh, it was 10 years ago yesterday they made their introduction into Canada. Uh, why was that significant? I mean, as you pointed out as well, that uh, they're global in their reach now, and uh, they've got this sort of pan-global. But Canada, why was Canada a significant uh, beachhead for them at the time? It was so important. Uh, six years earlier, they had already established a an office in the UK, and they were getting ready to ramp up and launch um, a, a, a DVD by mail uh, because they didn't have streaming at that time in the UK. And they really believed that they were going to go international really quickly, like 2004, 2005. Then came Blockbuster and Amazon into the picture, and they had to fight them off. So they literally closed down that office before they could even start. So in 2010, 
going into Canada seemed like such a big risk because they were still defending their, you know, their their market at home. So the Canada expansion, also what surprised everybody was it was going to be streaming only. And, and there was a lot of doubt as to whether people were going to want to stream only because the catalog was so thin. You know, there were there just were not a lot of great selections in streaming. And at that time, also, you couldn't get it to your TV. You had to watch it on your laptop. That was the only thing that the app was good for. So it was such a nail biter of an experience to go into the Canadian market and see how it was going to do a lot about their international expansion rose rode on how Canada did. So it was huge. They might have already uh, sussed out the market and say there's not a, a lot of domestic competition. I don't want to be uh, negative on what we produce in this country, but, you know, that does lead me to another question. The legacy media in this country and elsewhere as well, you know, angling towards a Netflix tax, thinking that they're getting away with bloody murder and they ought to kick back into the communities they serve. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, they've they've made some investments in Canada, and Canada is so popular for U.S. producers that, um, you know, there there has actually been talk not only about that, but also about, you know, the band, the, the uh, bandwidth caps and things like that, that Netflix should have to pay or subscribers should have to pay some kind of a premium because so much of your, band, of your bandwidth is used on Netflix. And, you know, so many originals are produced in Canada as well. Um, it's, I mean, I, I don't think that I would have a problem with that at all, with that at all. So much comes out of Canada that profits Netflix around the world. I think it'd be all right. Well, they say in their own defense that uh, they ponied up $500 million over five years to uh, produce content here in Canada. Whether or not that will assuage the leg- uh, legacy media uh, remains to be seen, but... Uh, Gina, it's a, a real pleasure to get these insights from you uh, 10 years on, and uh, now it's sort of part of the firmament for a lot of younger people, too. It's like uh, it always existed. Appreciate your time. Oh, absolutely. Always great to talk to you. Thank you. Gina Keating, author of Netflix, The Epic Battle for America's Eyeballs, as well as the maker of the documentary Netflix versus the World. It's all too likely we won't be gathering for Thanksgiving, but we still have a shot at Christmas. Together, we have the power to get the second wave under control. I know we can do it because we've already done it once before. Here's your prime minister from yesterday. And uh, (laughs) we won't be gathering for Thanksgiving, but we'll have a shot at Christmas. I mean, seriously, Thanksgiving is written off. Stick a fork in it like the bird. It's done. We're going to discuss shortly with our Sound and Fury panel, Anthony Fury from The Sun and uh, Peter Tabbins, the NDP's energy uh, crisis critic. But but nonetheless, this uh, Thanksgiving is not going to happen this year. That's ominous. That's our October surprise. You ever hear that phrase? That's coming up in the uh, November 3rd elections in the States, by the way. They're submitting that uh, there's going to be an October surprise. And some people are suggesting it could be Saudi Arabia following suit with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain in uh, joining the Abraham Accord, which was uh, a signal uh, signing last uh, week or two weeks ago, I guess, with uh, Donald Trump, Netanyahu, and uh, the respective leaders of those two countries, which... Augurs well for, I guess, the uh, prospects for peace in the Middle East. Uh, Is it also a clarion call for other Muslim nations to uh, fall in line and uh, be a part of this great move forward? Rahil Raza says as much, president of the Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow, also author of the book, 
Their Jihad, Not My Jihad, most recently the author of a piece in the National Post titled Why Israel's Peace Deals with the UAE and Bahrain Are Great News for Muslims. Raheel, great to have you on the Oakley Show this afternoon. Welcome. Thank you so much. So tell me why you feel this deal is great news for Muslims. Why is that? Well, because um, this is something that should have happened a long time ago. Um, I apologize that there's a uh, fire alarm practice going on, so I hope it's not too much disturbance. But uh, (laughs) uh, these are things that happen during COVID. I can't run anywhere. So, um, you know, I uh, am a Muslim, as, as you said, a practicing Muslim, and I have been going to Israel for um, the last, um, you know, one and a half decade. And um, I always believe that this was something that needs to happen if they want peace in the area. There has to be recognition of Israel by other Muslim countries, because you can only talk to someone if you recognize them. And you can only sit around a table and talk about a peace deal if there is, you know, understanding that this is a recognition of a country that has existed for 70 years. So um, for the work that we've been doing at Muslims Facing Tomorrow, this is excellent news because we want to build bridges, we want to see peace, and we want to see Israel recognized by many other Muslim countries. Well, it's interesting you say that, the recognition of Israel. I mean, uh, some have it built into their own so-called constitutions or foundational principles that they'd never recognize Israel, and we know that. So... uh, I mean, you're suggesting there's going to be somewhat of a a sea change in outlook or mentality. So where are the enlightened voices in the Muslim world or the leadership, I guess, specifically in these countries? Is there such? Well, yes. I mean, this is obviously what what we are seeing. You you wouldn't have uh, dreamt about 10 years ago that there would be recognition by the United Arab Emirates or Bahrain. And now we are, you know, hearing whispers and rumors about Saudi Arabia coming on board, um, you know, including Oman and other countries. So, yes, there has to be a change in thinking. We are living in times when uh, Muslim countries have had no choice. Because for over 70 years, uh, the Muslim leadership in the Middle East has used Israel and the Middle East crisis as an excuse, uh, you know, as a crutch for their own insecurities and inadequacies. And it's time that they moved beyond that. So whether it's, um, you know, written in the charters of different countries, these are things that are man-made and they can change and they should change. And that is imperative for uh, global peace because once Muslim countries start to recognize um, Israel more and more, uh, then the dynamics of the Middle East will change because uh, this is what has been needed. I mean, you know, you look at uh, the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation at the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva. Uh, For years I went there and I was appalled that they used every excuse for everything happening in the world to blame it on Israel. Uh, But, you know, with this recognition by Muslim countries, Israel will no longer be the fall guy for everything that's happening to you and me, including COVID. Well, it's interesting, yeah, because uh, when you say that, you know, they've been using Israel as a crutch, one might even say equally the Palestinians, the poor beleaguered Palestinians become convenient in uh, whatever it is, their angle, their gripe against Israel, and uh, it leads to all this uh, constant upheaval, well, yes. disruption. And, and the best example I can give you is of my land of birth, which is Pakistan. So, you know, the passport says it's valid for every country of the world except Israel. Now, Pakistan doesn't share a border with Israel. It's never been at war with Israel. 
Israel. Israel has never been a threat to Pakistan. However, because of the Palestinian cause, these uh, issues, you know, these these political issues come up. So uh, definitely this, um, the Middle East crisis has been used as a tool and as a crutch. And now uh, with this recognition, there can be dialogue. This is not to say that there are no problems. Every country has its problems. Every country has uh, problems with its borders and its neighbors. But these need to be discussed around a table. And that can only be done when you recognize the entity sitting across from you at the table. And that's what we are hoping for. That's what we are looking forward to, uh, that, you know, there will be interaction. And the other thing is that, you know, in, in part of the interfaith movement, so what has happened that as a mass block with, the, with this anti-Israel hatred, there was also a huge rise of anti-Semitism in the Muslim world. And it wasn't really based on anything except rumors and, you know, just this Middle East crisis issue. Now, this uh, hatred has got to stop. And so this can only happen through communication, getting to know each other, which was my own experience the first time I went to Israel and uh, met the people and, and, you know, saw the country and then started to understand that we have to build bridges. We have to talk to each other. We have to communicate good, bad or ugly, whatever it is. Uh, we can't afford any longer uh, to to live by political rumors and to let the leaders decide what uh, needs to be done or not to be done. I think the people have a right to know each other and make a decision themselves. And we see this happening on a small scale now with flights started to Dubai from Israel. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just, just a few minutes ago, um, I saw a video of the Israeli national anthem being played from the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. You know, I have lived in Dubai. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the only mention of uh, Israel that I ever heard there was it was the Israel boycott office. And so, you know, this is such great news. It is such a breakthrough. I mean, uh, to see this in my lifetime. And hope well, the, that, the Gulf states, Rahil, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, yeah, the ones in the Gulf, you know, as you cite, uh, UAE, Bahrain, uh, and that includes Dubai's in there, of course, uh, they seem more uh, almost secular, if you will. But uh, again, with Rahil Raza, and we're talking about the situation in the Middle East, she's the president of the Council for Muslims facing tomorrow. I said at the outset, could be the October surprise, but Saudi Arabia, if they're the next shoe to drop, and uh, they were to align themselves with this whole initiative or agenda, I guess you will, uh, of opening relationships because now Israeli flights can fly over Saudi airspace. So that's a bit of an opening as far as that's concerned. Uh, How significant is that? And is that the big game changer? It is. It is very significant because we know for a fact, and this is not hasn't been publicized, that Israel and Saudi Arabia have good relations. Uh, you know, uh, they talk to each other. But it, uh, once Saudi Arabia publicly recognizes Israel, there will be a domino effect for many other countries to follow suit. Now, uh, you know, having said there, that, it's important to know that there are some some Muslim countries uh, that will uh, never fall into line with this, and that's the Muslim Brotherhood bloc, which is Iran. Qatar, Turkey, Malaysia, because, uh, you know, this is the, the ideology that they are now banking upon. But there are other countries, uh, you know, 56 uh, Muslim countries as part of the OIC. So certainly there's possibility for many more to follow suit. And they do look upon Saudi Arabia as a leader in much of this. 
So once Saudi Arabia does uh, does agree to publicly acknowledge uh, and align with Israel, there will be a huge shift in uh, the Muslim world for sure. I got to ask you finally, I mean, uh, when Donald Trump decided to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, used to be a big sticking point. I mean, Joe Clark got into all kinds of trouble way back when for suggesting as much. Do you think, Canada, it's time for us to follow suit? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're talking to someone who thinks that this is something that should have happened. Definitely. It's, it's It's a great move. It's something that should have taken place a long time ago. And, uh, you know, despite uh, the kind of pushback that uh, President Trump has had in terms of everything that he's done, this is a huge breakthrough, uh, having brokered this peace alliance and having moved the embassy to Jerusalem. And I hope Canada will follow suit. Let's find out. uh, And let's see, too, if Saudi Arabia does follow suit and fall in line with the UAE and Bahrain as the potential October surprise. Rahil, always a pleasure. I appreciate that and uh, for your Thank you, and I just want to mention that I will be celebrating Thanksgiving with my limited number of people I'm allowed to. There's no (laughs) way I'm not celebrating. (laughs) All right, so you're not heeding the Prime Minister's warning that it's a write-off, okay? No. Uh, Thanks for your courage in all cases. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. You got it. Rahil Raza again, president of the Council for Muslims facing tomorrow. So much is COVID-19 related. I thought this is a great story that we ought to be at least enlightened about. Uh, In Helsinki, at the airport there in Finland, they've trained sniffer dogs to sniff out COVID-19. Who says you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Well, apparently they have. Don't know how old the dogs are, but let's find out. William Berloni is with us. He's a renowned theatrical trainer, also the director of the Animal Behavior of the Humane Society of New York. William, good to have you on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. So this is uh, an interesting development. I mean, as someone who's trained a lot of dogs, are you surprised that they can actually sniff out COVID-19? Not at all. Sometimes I think dogs are smarter than we are and much more talented. All right. So this is done with an agency called Wise Nose. Uh, Ever hear of them? Tell me more about them if you know anything. Uh, Who are they? How they operated here? I'm not familiar with them, and I also saw the story. um, And when I read it, uh, I thought, of course, why haven't we thought of that before? You know, um, dogs have successfully sniffed out drugs bombs and missing persons because they can sniff, they can detect molecules. And viruses are made out of molecules as well. So it's just a matter of, you know, retraining them to sniff out those molecules instead of what they're already trained to do. How about the accuracy? I mean, uh, obviously, we wouldn't want anybody to slip through the cracks or anything like that. What would the accuracy rate of something like a sniffer dog be in any event, whether it's a bomb, whether it's, you know, uh, other pests or uh, drugs, in this case, COVID-19, because of its uh, molecular structure? Well, let's put it this way. You know, they're trained like Navy SEALs. And so no dog, whether it's uh, bomb, drugs, or, you know, search and rescue, are going to be sent in the field unless they've tested at 100%. Now, there's always human error, you know, the people who handle the dogs, but um, I would say that their accuracy is much more, is much better than some of the laboratory testing, which we know comes up with false, you know, positives as well. How do we arrive at which dogs might be best by breed? Uh, are there olfactory specifications? How does that work? Um, just like people, we all have our, our, our 
best suits, our best talents, you know, based on our genetics. Um, you don't want to see me tap dance because I have two left feet. But, you know, they, dogs who are hounds, who, who were bred for their olfactory senses to sniff, are usually the best dogs to use for this work. In the United States, if a bloodhound identifies you as a criminal, it's admissible in court. That's how accurate it is. So, you know, it's basically by breed, through the hound breeds, but every once in a while a dog may have a, a background in which somewhere way back when it, it, it had hound in it. So those are usually the dogs, beagles, you know, or beagle mixes. Yeah, I saw the RCMP handler with a beagle at the uh, baggage claim at Pearson International a while back. Uh, just a cute little guy, but uh, running around the baggage, and I guess he was doing his job. What would the training involve for this? Is it extensive, or do the dogs have this aptitude that sort of clicks in immediately if, uh, you know, they got the faculty for sniffing things out? Um, the training is pretty, pretty thorough, because, again, there's people's lives at stake, and... Um, but it's it's done with positive reinforcement. Basically, those dogs are searching for that scent to get their prize. Sometimes it's a ball, sometimes it's a treat, but it's all positive reinforcement. So they're they're driving because they know the reward is going to be really good for them. So that's why that's another reason they're so accurate. You know, they don't come to work tired and going. Oh, I'm not going to do my job today. They come in fresh and ready to go. And and you know, when they find it, they get their treat that really good treat. My understanding is uh, at the airport in Helsinki, what they're actually doing is, uh, I guess, hedging, if you will. They've got the dog, but they've also got the testing that takes place. For example, if the dog sniffs out somebody and uh, mm -hmm. makes the call that this person may be positive, or at least, you know, is carrying what the dog smells to be the COVID-19, they pull that person aside, administer a test to check to see uh, the reliability of the dog's assessment, and the dog seems to be hitting a home run. Uh, so I don't know that there'd be necessarily any false positives with a dog, whereas with testing, we're told now it's not exactly 100% foolproof. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the dog will not only sniff out COVID, but it'll tell you what you had for lunch, too. <laughs> No. So. <laughs> Listen, if you've got COVID concentrated in the crotch, every dog is going to smell it at some point. You know how that works. I mean, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But no, it's I, I, again, it was like a light bulb that went off. It's like, of course, you know, our man's best friend is there once again to to keep us safe. And, and certainly in this pandemic, it's a much more uh, uh, economical quicker way to start getting some testing in major airports and in other major areas where, you know, you have to test a lot of people. You know, you could have almost anticipated this because we were made aware, it wasn't that long ago, that we were told dogs uh, can actually detect cancer in patients. How reliable yep. is that? Apparently, um, very reliable. When in, in a case like that, um, the cancer dogs really have to be the, the best of the best because there are so many different cell types in our bodies for it to differentiate. Mm -hmm. um, whereas when you spit into a cup, the dog only has, you know, the saliva scent and then the virus. So, but those dogs apparently are very accurate, um, but there are very few of them. That's the problem. There's only uh, a handful in the world that are really um, reliable at it. That was intriguing what you just said. Uh, when you spit into the cup, uh, does the dog actually then smell the sample, or what is it that the dog uses by way of detection? 
when I read the article, it's a, it's a saliva test. So uh, again, it's not as intrusive as the the swab method. Um, and the the subject spits into a cup, and they let the dog sniff the cup. If it were practical to do, I would think this would almost be a, a good idea as a way to, you know, as people are entering the country uh, from ports, you know, abroad, this might be the first line of defense or screening that we could invoke. I mean, sometimes just holding up one of those temperature guns doesn't tell you the entire story. I mean, some people may be, you know, uh, were under a heat lamp or got a suntan or something that leads uh, them to radiate, but this would be maybe a better fail-safe, and uh, if that were practical to do, but that would really, uh, I guess, need a lot of dogs to be recruited for that position. Fascinating world, the canine. Uh, no wonder they're man's best friend. I mean, they've got so much to recommend them, and this could be uh, the latest installment of doing some testing here in COVID-19. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your time, William. I mean, it's always good to talk uh, and find out just how marvelous these animals are, and you know that firsthand, having worked with them uh, most of your professional life. Thanks so much for your time from New York today. You're welcome. You're welcome, John. You got a William Berloni, renowned theatrical trainer, also the director of animal behavior at the Humane Society of New York. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, September 24th, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.